This is Offscript with Trish Glose. Intimate interviews and conversations with interesting people. And in front of my mic today is Mr. Garth Harrington. Hello, sir. Good morning. I'm feeling intimate. You are you? This is very intimate. Isn't it is. It? It's cozy. It is very cozy. I did not bring my scotch. <laughs> well, it's early. Dang it! Uh, it's never too early for a nice scotch. <laughs> We'll talk about scotch later. So um, you are, you're officially, your your title these days is retired. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, as Rosemary likes to point out, not sure how we have any time for work. I agree. I mean, you two are always busy. And for those um, who are listening and watching, you are married to the lovely Rosemary Harrington. I am indeed. 35 okay. years and the training is almost complete. Nice. <laughs> she always says, he's so cute. That's what she always says about you. Um, all right, we are going to talk a lot about being retired and, and scotch and maybe a little bit of rosemary as well. Uh, where are you from originally? San Francisco. San Francisco, California. Born? Fallen on hard times, I must say. Yeah, how long did you live there? Um, actually, through college, uh, accepting my military service, uh, about 26 years. Wow. Do you consider that home? Not anymore. Mm -hmm. No, I've come to be sadly a little ashamed of the city. It, it, when, when I grew up, it was a great cosmopolitan melting pot with where everybody honored each other and respected each other. And um, just as an example, the town was so fantastic that my mother uh, never owned a car until she was like 50, 55 years old. She commuted halfway across town to the Conservatory of Music mm -hmm. and used the bus system. There was a, You could catch a streetcar or a bus and go within a block of where you wanted to go in that town. Amazing. Now what? you don't dare get on one. So, right. And this was you, I mean, you grew up there. You were a kid in San Francisco. Yes. When, what sort Walked of, what to time? What, when was this? Like, what, what decade are we Well, talking? I was born in 1940. And uh, it was through the snow and the sled and the sneet and, uh, and went to uh, two Catholic grammar schools, uh, St. Dominic's and St. Vincent de Paul. One was a five-block walk, one was a three-block walk. And okay. it, was, uh, it was a very cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan town, but at the same time was very, very intimate. Mm -hmm. uh, I had the privilege, uh, we grew up in very humble surroundings. I love to tell the story of when my mother and father decided to go their separate ways. She had to find a, a place to live. and But she wanted to live in a good neighborhood. Well, of course. she wasn't making a lot of money, and my father wasn't giving us a lot of money. And so how are you going to live in a really nice neighborhood without a lot of money? Right. Well, mother was one of those engineers in life. She could just kind of make things happen. Mm. and That's my so, kind of woman. Oh, Make things happen, and she she could she could make you make things happen. <laughs> I like that. Uh, but she uh, she uh, was browsing the paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, I imagine, mm -hmm. and she sees this mansion for sale. Now, why she was looking under mansions, <laughs> I have no idea. But beside the mansion, at the corner of Pacific and Steiner Street was a little tiny home that appeared to be almost on stilts. Uh, it, it, you walked in mm -hmm. under it mm -hmm. and then wound around a staircase and got to the top floor. This was the Japanese servants' quarters for the mansion on the corner. Okay. And my father, being of uh, multiple skills 
and but once again, not having as much money, uh, came in and remodeled the place for it, for us, and we had it. And but it was for short people. I mean, it, it had a peaked roof, but the side walls were about three and a half feet high. Oh my goodness! So you walk down the center of the room, and when you got to the side of the room, you kind of crooked over just a little <laughs> bit, and you were okay. Uh, what did your mom do for a living? She was a professional uh, concert pianist. Um, eloquently trained first by the nuns in Canada and then eventually by the finest of uh, musicians, um, oh, uh, Lyle Gustin, who is a legendary keyboard pianist, mm -hmm. uh, a Lashtitsky advocate, and for those who understand keyboards, uh, he was the maestro. Nice. Uh, and she uh, grew up, uh, determined that eventually that she did not have that rock-hard temperament which you must have if you're going to be a solo concert performer. You've, mm -hmm. you've got to be able to do it. You make a mistake. She could not handle making mistakes. Ooh. And when you make a mistake in the middle of a performance, you bore on, you know. Right. And she just had a, an incredibly difficult time mastering that. She's an incredibly humble woman. So it, this just was she, she couldn't, she had her own sense of pride, but it, it didn't carry over into. Nobody saw that. I'll just go on. You know? Right. Did you have siblings growing up? I did not. Okay. I was a lonely you were only, only child. Yeah. Were you allowed to make mistakes as a oh, kid? Yes, as a yes. kiddo? Oh, absolutely. No, and I made plenty of them. <laughs> uh, and my father was also a professional musician at the time that they met. He was a, an Irish tenor who was a, um, a nightclub entertainer and a fully certified rascal, I might say. Nice. He met my mother picture of dignity. Somehow, I don't know how this happened, they got married. They were, um, they were performing individually. Mother was an accompanist at the old uh, KFRC uh, radio stations, the Don Lee Broadcasting Network okay. of the West Coast, okay. which goes back to, was before the Ark landed, I think. Uh, <laughs> but at any rate, but at any rate, uh, he was a singer, and mm -hmm. of course, he needed an accompanist, and so she was the studio accompanist. That's okay. how she would make money in those days. Okay. She was teaching, uh, she was affiliated with various musicians around San Francisco, eventually evolved to become a professor of music at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music in its very salad days, when it was in a, a group of two or three little buildings on Sacramento Street, just west of Presidio, for those of you in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. These were little cottages. Ada Clement mm -hmm. Lillian Hodgehead founded the San Francisco Tor Conservatory of Music, which now, of course, is downtown in San Francisco, has right. huge facilities. It's just grown beyond anything you could imagine. Do you get a little sad when you go back and visit the uh, city? The, the, the city is very distressing now. I mean, this this latest episode with the city is now retired, re, uh, retained the services of a Poop Patrol. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether you've read this or not. I don't. Well, it's keep going. I don't want to. Okay, don't. It's disgusting. Don't. This, okay, we won't. We won't go there. Um, but you, growing up in San Francisco, you left. You said when you joined the army. Yes. Okay, so yes. that was after high school, I'm assuming. I did. I, I did a little internship of labor down in L.A. just to kind of. Um, see if I was halfway an adult, mm -hmm. stayed at a little hotel down there and worked. I got a job through a, um, a friend of a friend uh, in a carpet uh, warehouse, which was pretty comical because I weighed about 120 pounds and I was 5'10", <laughs> and I'm with these guys busting carpets, laboring all over the city, delivering uh -huh. these huge rolls of carpet. 
And this one guy, he says, oh, don't worry, you can, you can buck for me. I said, okay. So he says, okay, just uh, untie this, this one roll of carpet that we had. They were in various rolls in the uh, longitudinally stacked on this flatbed. Okay. And so we'd roll up to this loading dock, and this guy was a madman. And he'd whip around, face the back end into the loading dock, which is about six inches higher than the bed of the, well, lower than the bed of the truck. Back the truck up at about 15 miles an hour, dynamite the brakes, and the roll would fly off. Uh-huh. He'd go sign the paper, and we'd go deliver the next roll. Wow. Oh, this is easy. This is <laughs> what made you want to join the Army? Oh, I, those were in the days of mandatory service, the draft. So you had to. Well, you had a choice of two years draft or three years voluntary. And if you volunteered, you sort of got to pick your MOS, which is uh, military occupational skill. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go in the Signal Corps because I thought that would be dry. I thought you wouldn't be in the mud and all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. And wrong. Yeah, you, you went mud. to yeah, you went to Korea. I did. I did. Charming place. How how long were you there? Uh just over a year. Okay. Which was just fine. All right. That's just all you want to know. There were hairy experiences over there. I'll just put it this way. Uh we were supposed to be in a uh ceasefire zone. Mm-hmm. And not all the players got the word. Okay. So, Noted. Uh, you were also um, a singer with the Army Choir. Uh, yes, it was. A, that was a when I determined I was not going to make a career out of the Army, which wasn't too hard to figure out once you got in. Okay. Um, I hunted around for ways to make my stay most pleasant. Uh, I was wound up being an infantry instructor, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, <laughs> at Fort Carson, Colorado during the Brandenburg Gate Crisis back in 1961. And uh, uh, I was, we go into town at night, you know, and go to a bar, you know, what mm -hmm. else do you do? Right. And so I'm meeting these guys and I was just sort of halfway singing along with these guys, you know, they were all drinking and yelling and screaming. There was this quartet up on the bandstand and it turned out the quartet was part of a gr entertainment troupe in the army, but at night they made extra money by mm -hmm. playing music. And I'm sitting with this one guy, Bill Powell, and he says, you got a good voice. And I said, yeah. I said, a couple of beers, I can do anything. <laughs> and he says, no, no, no. He says, you got a good voice. you got to join our group. And I said, what group? And he says, the Army Air Defense Command Choral Group, which certainly gets the award for the longest title it for does. a choral group. It that's, does. That's a long, long title. And we were part of NORAD, the North American Air Defense Command. Okay. Well, this led to, I walked down. They were out of town. They were on a bus, okay. touring as they mm -hmm. were. Their mission, our mission as I became a member of the group, was to entertain the troops who manned the Nike sites. I don't know, these were not athletic places. These were Nike missiles. Okay. These were Air Defense Command missiles uh, along the periphery of the country designed to shoot down missiles and airplanes and anything else which are coming into the country. By their very nature, they were isolated, and therefore, and troops went in there, were in there for the duration. They didn't get to go to town, to the ball. So you so. were performing for them. So we were performing for them. And so we had about a 40-voice choir, which you wouldn't think would be all entertaining, but we devised a, a fairly creative um, menu of entertainment. And mm -hmm. I got, as I say, hired into the group, and the next thing I knew, the guy who was playing bass for the quartet in the group 
retired. And so they said, Harrington, you have a musical background. I said, well, doesn't everybody here? And he says, not so much. <laughs> so at any rate, they stuck a bass in my hand and said, you get to sleep after you practice bass each night. So I would go in the bathroom uh, without the amplifier, because uh -huh. it was a bass amp, uh, sure. am amplified uh, bass. And I sat there and taught myself these various wow. songs. And I only had to know about four or five of them, and it all came out great, and it was wonderful. And then that led to my ex-military musical experience, wherein I formed up with another guy in San Francisco, where I went, I went back to school to San Francisco State College. And um, we had this little trio, drummer, I was the bassist, and the guitarist was a fellow by the name who you would never know, his name okay. was Tyrone Schmedlig. He wound up auditioning for and playing the lead guitar for Hair in San Francisco. Wow. At the Orpheum Theater. Wow. For like two or three years. And I was already, had moved on from town, had come to work at then KTVM, now KOBI television up mm -hmm. here. So Ty went and had the fun and I went and learned right, television. Right, so. right. Well, so that brings me to my next question. What made you move up here? Because you, after... Were you wanting to be a musician, or were you studying something else? No, at that was strictly a, that was a means to an end. It was a mm -hmm. financial vehicle. I enjoyed it, but uh, I was married, and um, musicians are—you better really mean it, you know. That's true. Yeah, you have to be dedicated if you're going to really you go do. for that yeah. occupation. And, and so, at any rate, uh, no, I was training for a career in I thought um, radio sports. And, but I did not have a, in those days, the big voice was the big thing, you know, you know mm -hmm. good evening, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, th I didn't possess that voice. So I, uh, which surprises me. Well, I, I got older. Oh, you know, your voice changes as you get older. Uh, it's probably the only part of my b brain that's matured. I, well, I, th <laughs> I think you have a great voice. Well, thank you. Um, at any rate, um, I, uh, auditioned at KCRA in um, uh, Sacramento mm -hmm. and, and some other small place. Couldn't get hired. So I said, all right, well, let's go down a few markets. Wound up at, you're, you're familiar with the term ADI, and I'm sure some of your listeners are. It means area of dominant influence. Right. And in uh, Southern Oregon, which incidentally is one of the most fantastic test markets you can have because you know, before satellite, no signals in, no signals out. Mm -hmm. So you had a compressed communication thing or you could buy two television stations and find out whether the ad was working mm -hmm. uh, back in the day. Well, I uh, kept bugging Bill Smullen and he was, he was a traveling man. He was all over the place. But I'd chase him down and I'd get, get him on the phone and say, really want that job. And he finally says, okay, I want you to come up, take a tour. Well, I got on Bill's bad side right away because he says you're going to tour all the stations and that would be um, Channel 5 in Medford, Channel 2 in Klamath Falls, um, Channel 3 in Eureka, and Channel 7 in Reading. These were oh, all, so pretty close together. You know, well, in a way. <laughs> uh, so at any rate, we drove to KIEM in Sacramento, I mean in Eureka, uh -huh. um, got back in the car, rolled up the windows and said, wow, that stinks. You know, it's, it's just, have you ever been down there when they were running the r lumber mills and all that? <laughs> no. Oh, it makes this smoke that we just had reasonable. 
Oh, really? Oh, gosh, it was like opening the plane when you got to Korea. Oh, what is that smell? You know, and you <laughs> oh, close no. the door. Oh, um, no. So at any rate, we uh, made it to Reading, uh, to uh, Medford. Jerry Paulus, who was then the general manager of the station, I guess took one look at me and said, hey, you're on. I said, good deal. Nice. Went and told Small, and Small said, I thought we agreed you were going to tour all the state. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> so you started work at, at KOB. Well, I did after a big, deep breath, and Smullen said, well, I want you to tour the rest of the stations anyway, Well, that, which I did. I went to Klamath Falls, and I went to Reading. And, mm -hmm. But, you know, Paula said, I really want you to work here. And I met my good friend Tom Nelson, who's become a lifelong buddy and uh, golfer and what have you, and uh, several other guys, a latter-day fellow by the name of Tom, uh, Scott Tippetts, who was here when I returned in 1984, and several other people that we sort of had some artificial reunions here mm -hmm. after a while, those of us who are still, you know, above the divots, as we say. But this place stuck for you. I mean, you've been here ever since, right? Well, no. Uh, oh, no, by no means. Uh, oh, I, I, uh, Scratch uh, that. I was, well, I was, I was in the growth mode then, you know, where you're trying to boost your career. Uh, move up that ladder. Move up the ladder. So I, uh, I kept sending out videotapes, these huge two-inch videotapes, you know, yeah. just send them out. I've and, seen a few. Yep. Yeah. And, um... Uh, one hit in, in uh, Fresno. Terribly amusing story there. Because uh, I'd been sending these out to places, you know, and they'd call back, thank you very much, we don't have everything right now. And is this just a voice? Like, no, no, no. A no, voice demo? No. This is video for you. Yeah, this was, well, it was video. Uh, what they're, I was trying to get into was video production, which I was in. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, in small market television in those days, uh, the stories are just legendary, and particularly if you worked for Bill Smullen, because he was going to find a way to get something done. You didn't stop him. Mm. He was just that way. I like it. And so when color came to town, I arrived in town just as what we call the color film chain, okay. which, which is it's a giant color camera, which has a mirror system in front of it, uh -huh. and uh, the mirrors focus left, right, and through. So on the left, you have one 16-millimeter film projector. On the other side, you have another 16-millimeter film projector. And in the middle, you have six, a 32-gang slide projector. So you have the way of showing color in both film and in slides. And these things would, what we call douse, or they had uh, air-powered mirrors, which would fly up and fly down okay. to allow one projector to see the camera or the slide projector, what have you. It was always kind of wild because there was no preview. You know, you better have the right slide up, <laughs> and it better be right side up, and it better not have a fingerprint on it. Oh, man. Because when you doused to the slide, there it was. Okay. And everybody knew who was operating the slide right. chain, and they'd go, yeah, you yeah. know. Oh, Everyone God. knew who was in trouble if it wasn't right. Oh, baby. Yeah. Uh, well, at any rate, add one more thing. Remember Bill Small? Because he already dropped 80 grand. In 1966. Oh, man, that's a lot of dough. Well, as his wife Rusty said, she walked into the room, looked at the uh, color film chain. She looked at me and she says, I want you to take very good care of that. That's my dining room set. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, <laughs> Bill decides that we're going to be first with local live color. How cool. Uh, yeah. Did it work? Yeah. It, but you wanted to, you needed a lot of hair tonic and a fan. Because there's a, there's a, um, 
a term which you probably are not familiar with, but it's called Kelvin. And mm -hmm. it has to, yeah. okay. It has to do with with tungsten temperature, exactly. light temperature, right? And colors change if you're using incandescent versus color. Right. Well, you had to use in uh, uh, tungsten because the slide projector and the film projectors were were tungsten. So if you were going to use that same camera, it had to be exactly. tungsten. Right. So you had to light the set with about eight 18 inch scoops an average distance of probably two and a half feet from the talent, all blazing away with... No way. <laughs> you get the picture. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, a fan blowing. Sure. Because to keep you halfway cool, my buddy Jim Morgan was one of our first broadcasters up there, and he had a very nice head of hair, but... <laughs> Boy, you talk about Wild Root Cream Oil Charlie. I mean, you had to have it glued down or it would shoot out to the side, you know, with these fans blowing. Okay, so a lot of hairspray. A lot of hair. Well, we didn't have hairspray in those days. It was tonic. So anyway. Hair, hair tonic. Hair tonic, yes. Wild Root Cream Oil Tonic. Keep okay. your hair in trim. <laughs> and, well, now you're asking, well, how did you get the film camera to take the picture of the, of the talent? Well, Bill said, we need another mirror. Okay. So, beside the slide projector, they put another mirror which focused out to the studio and took the image of the newscaster. Well, yeah, as long as the newscaster was sitting in exactly the right position <laughs> because the, the film camera's not going to move. Right. So, you can't move. Okay. Well, but oh, we wanted man. a two-person desk. So, Bill said, okay, we're going to take both film projectors the film camera and the slide projector, and we're going to put them on a 12-foot, 1-inch-thick 12 metal turntable, and the whole thing's going to rotate. Well, how are we going to do that? He says, well, we'll get a motor, and we'll put a big belt around this turntable, and we'll put a rheostat on the motor, and we'll make it reversible so that we can turn the whole film chain to focus on whichever newscaster you want it on, either the newscaster or the sportscaster. And Bob Johnson was a sportscaster, and he was a kind of a, he was a great guy. But he was a little on the heavy side, a little on the ruddy side. And by the time he finished, he said he lost five pounds in every newscast. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mr. Smullen sounds like you just said it. I mean, he was the guy, especially back then, he was making things happen as the world of TV was changing. Into cable. Yeah. He had people going from door to door selling cable. Remember, this was when TV was free. Exactly. And he was saying, no, we want you to pay for it. Uh-huh. And we'll have cable. And we'll have two or three extra channels for you. And by the time he had finished with cable, he wound up selling his operation to the Boston Globe for more than enough money to fund all of the astounding bequeathments and uh, uh, things that he's done in this valley, including the Smullen Center and right. this and this and, 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 and. So... He is a modern-day miracle. And if you're not, but if you're not changing, especially in this industry, if you're not changing along with the world is changing, you're just you're gonna die. It's yeah. just it's it'll, not. It'll it's just not bypass you. Mm -hmm. It'll just bypass you. I mm -hmm. started a company in 1989 called um, Info Information on Hold, and I'm kind of proud to say that at least in the Valley, the term Info I N P H O, which is information on phone. Mm -hmm has almost become a Kleenex term. 
which is I'm kind of proud of, actually. Well, yeah, you should be. Well, I sold the company uh, after about six years because I was a one-man band, and I contracted a salivary cyst, and we managed to successfully get rid of that. But my wife looked at me and said, okay, fun's over. You're no longer the only employee of the company, who, of course, was the salesman, the producer, the copywriter, the announcer, the right. engineer, the mm -hmm. this, the that, and what have you. And I said, okay, fine. So she said, we're either going to find a partner or some employees. We're going to sell the company. Well, while I was thinking about it, she sold the company. <laughs> she just did it. <laughs> Which worked out very, very well because I'm still at arm's length with them, associated mm -hmm. with them, and they're wonderful people, and they've taken the company to other levels. But my point in the changing part of it was when I first started this, we were making music on hold tapes, which consisted of uh, sections of music followed by little snippets of information about the company. My mi company mission statement was give the people something for their time mm -hmm. and make them think, gee, I didn't know that. Okay. So rather than just peddling stuff, you would, if it were a plumbing company, did you know that we do X, which mm -hmm. most people don't know companies do. So, you know, and that was my goal, was to find little interesting snippets, and it worked. But the production technique was extremely interesting because in those days, you know, you had to do everything, and there was no editing. It was all strictly one pass. One, take, it, one take wonders. One take wonders, and it was a six-minute pass. Well, you could pre-record the voice. Uh-huh. And you could and you could do that till you got it right. But I would put those on reel to reels with little blank spots in between them. So you play the reel and then you stop the reel mm -hmm. and you play the LP in the background. And so you're kind of jiggling and just that and the other thing and right. changing cuts on the LP, all this live recording. So um, that was getting to be quite a contest and actually I'd made a deal with, um, I think uh, Kingsley was here then, if I'm not mistaken. Mr. Kingsley Kelly. Mr. Kingsley Kelly, your GM, and he very graciously, I traded him some um, music on hold product for the use of his audio studio, oh. which was then was down and around the corner and uh -huh. in the back room. Okay. And uh, just about the time he was getting tired of me being here and me <laughs> being tired of imposing on him, um, a curious phenomena occurred. First of all, the Music on Hold company music suppliers were pr producing stuff on CD, which was very helpful because, of course, you can program CDs. Mm -hmm. And the other half was they'd come out with a system called a DAT, digital audio tape, which you're probably not familiar with, but they were little tiny cassettes, which you could record small amounts of audio information on and then slug it with an electric electronic label like one, two, three, four, mm. five. Mm -hmm. So you would build a company library with maybe 50 or 60 cuts on it and you could program them to play back in this DAT machine, cut one, cut 17, cut 14, cut 62, cut this, cut that, which was great. Uh, uh, LTM was a client of ours when I was uh, back, before it was Knife River. Mm -hmm. I had over 120 messages for them. And they just call me up and say, well, okay, we want to change it, so let's play messages. And I would do, trot the thing out there, and it was all recorded onto a cassette. Well, that was step two. Those were endless cassettes, loops, six minutes. And, of course, they were, like any other mechanical device, a very subject to failure. Mm -hmm. So step three was the digital world, which we're seeing in front of us right now. And we are, yes. And those were 
even more revolutionary for music on hold machines because you could put them on site, put a CD in there, it would play a six minute program recorded onto a chip, stop the CD, and the chip would continue to burp out this information, <laughs> six minutes long, repeating for as long as you left it alone, unless there was a power failure, and then it would automatically reload itself. Wow. Oh, it was amazing. So, and that's gone even further now. It's gone to chip where we can download off a satellite. You have local news, which is plugged into these things mm -hmm. through music on hold. So the technology, as you say. It's astounding. It's, oh, it's, ma amazing. it's like magic to me. Well, it's, and trying to keep up with it is yes, even more exactly. magic. So I told you I bugged your wife, Rosemary, for some dirt on you. Of course. And she gave me some good stuff. I didn't know you were on the Ed Sullivan Show. Well, that's part of the uh, Army Air Defense Command Coral Group okay. uh, story. And uh, we were, it was a J July 4th celebration. Okay. And so we were commissioned by the uh, Ed Sullivan Show to perform, or the NORAD band, which was the, in those days, the finest symphonic military band in the world. Mm. Uh, the, and the musicians were, I mean, they could, they could play for Bernstein. They could play for Toscanini. They were fantastic individuals. Okay. We walk in right now, squeaky voices, and we're doing the thing, you know. <laughs> and so they did some special arrangements, uh, including a medley from uh, uh, West Side Story, which was marvelous. Mm. And so we were rehearsing all of this stuff with a piano and our little voices. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to us, the NORAD band is over in their headquarters in Ant Air Force Base. And they're rehearsing too. And they're rehearsing by section, you know, the reeds, right. the brass, the this, the right. that, the other thing. Each one of these section leaders could have been a concert conductor. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, uh, we go over there and say, okay, it's time to put it together. And so we get up on our risers and they walk into their practice hall. Major Azzolino, who can barely, he's the world's greatest promoter and the world's worst director. Oh, But no. fortunately he had a very, very good concert master by the name of Loy Ebersol. And when things got difficult, Mark would go, Loy, and uh -huh. Loy would take over and everything would be fine. Well, the first thing that happens, which just goes ding, is this is a full dress rehearsal for the uh, Ed Sullivan show. Mm -hmm. And Master Sergeant Bill Ballinger uh, strides to the microphone and does the announcements because this is a show. And so he does the announcements. Well, they open the microphone, and out comes this voice, mm. which I've never heard since. Mm. Master Sergeant Loy, um, Bill Ballinger, you know. Holy Toledo! <laughs> and I looked, I looked at the other guys, and I said, oh, we're in the wrong building. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, we're all kind of going, and so Ebersol raises his baton and everything's synchronized, Ballinger, the music and everything else. And we know what our cue is, mm -hmm. but we're all almost afraid to sing because this is so mad. And the, the, the music coming out of that orchestra is unbelievable. Right, a little intimidated. Oh God. And <laughs> a miracle occurs. <laughs> Loy turns to us and we start singing. 
we were good. <laughs> we were really good. And the whole thing stopped at the end. We, and, and the band stood up and applauded us. Wow. And, and I, I went up to, the, to our leader and I said, you know, the really bad news is I don't think we can do that again. And he said, oh, no. He says, we got it. Yeah. And so we walked in. And this is where it gets interesting. We drive our big, hairy, silver eagle bus down Fifth Avenue in New York City and get to the Ed Sullivan Theater. And we go in there. Of course, Ed's nowhere to be found. You know, this is all pre-recorded. Of course. But here's the kink. We get up on our risers. They get up on their band. Master Sergeant Bill Ballinger gets up on his little mm -hmm. thing. And there are four professional voices who are going to sing front with us. John Raitt, Shirley, McCl uh, Shirley Jones, uh, and two others who I can't remember. Mm -hmm. John Raitt has laryngitis. Oh, man. They come to my good buddy, first tenor, Errol Vangsness. Here's a sidebar. Do you watch that uh, movie, that uh, that series, which has Christ Kirsten Vangsness in it, where she's the crazy gal with the big glasses and she's no. very, very, oh, God, well, at any, we saw this name on credits, called her. Yeah. And it turns out she was the daughter. Okay, awesome. All well, right. Well, so at any rate, Errol uh, is a magnificent voice. He's one of the best voices of the group. And they came over with a lavalier microphone. Mm-hmm. And said, uh, <clears throat> you're going to sing for Mr. Rate. Errol goes, okay, what am I going to sing? And they said, here's your script. So Eric said, uh, Errol says, uh, <clears throat> don't suppose I could go over here in a corner for a minute and kind of lose. Yeah, we'll give you 10 minutes. Oh, boy. Okay, 10 so, minutes. Well, he's a musician. Mm -hmm. So this was no mean trick. Not only did he master it, but he got it off the page. Mm. So he didn't have to stand there in the middle of the choral group. Well, of course, he was going to be hidden anyway. So the show begins. And John Raitt's out there. And for all the world, singing to the Ed Sullivan Show, not a note. It's all coming out of Errol's voice. Wow. And nobody ever knew. <laughs> the, but the, the poor guy didn't get the, he didn't get the, um, the, the credit the credit for that, though. Oh, he got all the credit in the world. We bought him beer until he couldn't stand up. <laughs> nice. So that's the Ed Sullivan story. That's the Ed Sullivan story. It was quite something. It was, it was marvelous. I mean, it was just, you know, sometimes just really extraordinary things happen and do you have no idea it's going to happen or how it happened. Mm -hmm. Did that make you a little emotional? Oh, yeah. How, well, oh, how, yeah. Why? How come? Oh, you know, I've had a storied life in a lot of ways and tried to make as many mistakes as a human being can. And, you know, I think about all the cliffs that I didn't go off that I got so close to. Mm -hmm. And starting in Korea, which we won't talk about. Um, but it's a, I'm a very lucky man. Awesome. Well, I know there's a lot of stories that we're, <laughs> we're not even going to get to today. I think no, you're no, no, full no. of stories. I, I'm afraid I wore out your machine. Okay. <laughs> well, I do want to ask you my final three. Uh, first of which, best advice you've ever been given? Well, I think it was a declaration from my father. 
something of a reasonably fortuitous nature happened, and I can't even specify what it was. Okay. But he said, you're just like me. You're going to be lucky. Wow. I thought, well, and you know, I've never had cause to gainsay that, really. I've just really been lucky. I've been hired. I've been fired. I've been this. I've been that. But I seem to have been lucky because, you know, they say when one door closes, another opens. Mm -hmm. You know, and when I, uh, my first wife and I went south, I was, uh, that was a sad portion. When I met Rosemary, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So, you know. I love that. You're the guy that always lands on his feet. I think I'm the guy with an invisible parachute. (laughs) Okay. The, the, uh, uh, another piece of advice, I guess, um, I learned early on that I didn't have the Bill Bellinger voice. And one of my um, professors, who had a very good voice, intelligent person, Mm -hmm. marvelous individual, and a great reference for me, uh, said, he says, do what you do well. Hmm. And I thought, when I started off to go and start to do things that I wasn't real good, I thought, wait, 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 that's not the Quinn Millar motive. Don't do that. Do something you do well. Do what you do well. Yeah. Okay. Um, If you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would bring you back here? What would you miss the most? Oh, I think the friends, you know, the the memories are wonderful, but the memories will take, you can go anywhere with the memories. But uh, as Rosemary said, now, you know, we were in the best of this smoke episode that we've had recently. Boy. We, I've never done so much indoor breathing in my life. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, we, you keep thinking, well, maybe we really need to go. And, of course, we look at each other and say, well, where would you like to go mm-hmm. other than here? And the answer is... No place, really. We're pretty happy here. We get the seasons. We have marvelous, marvelous friends. We both love golf, and we're seconds from the golf course, and we have surrounded ourselves with wonderful friends up there, Um, wonderful friends in the media, including you and and Chuck and Kingsley. and Mm -hmm. um, It's uh, just, it's a wonderful place. It really is. Well, it sounds like you're doing it right, for sure. And then finally... If you were given a last meal and a last drink, what would that be, sir? Wow, let's not rush into anything. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, well, um, a meal. Well, I, w- I would imagine. Well, I, you know, I just had a slice of Jerry Evans New York Strip uh, Sunday at the uh, the beautiful Jay Villain. Uh, no, no, at the uh, at oh. the at the wine fete. They were serving. Platon was carving oh, yes, yes, on yes. site, and I was reminded how wonderful. The Jayville Inn is. At the Oregon Wine Experience. Yes. They were there, yes. And, and you did such a marvelous job. Thank you, sir. And um, and so did Scott. And, of course, Stan Dupree is kind of like, well, that's another episode of my life that Rosemary probably told you about. Is she I, did. I have it on my list. I got, We'll I, get to it next time. Well, I somehow I got to be an auctioneer, and I'm quite not sure how that happened <laughs> or how I'm going to get out of this alive. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, of course, um, for a, a drink, um, Balvini Single Malt is pretty much the, mm. the the sip du jour and um, with a with a wonderful cavassier back okay all right I, I think that would um, that would probably get me to St. Peter's in condition to where he'd be willing to talk to me and I to him <laughs> I love it I somehow think he probably likes Belvini too <laughs> I think you're pretty fantastic 
Garth Harrington. Um, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We are also on Google Play. You can check out the video portion of this podcast, and I suggest you do because this one was quite lively today. Just <laughs> click on Features and then Off Scripts. Garth Harrington, once again, thank you, sir. Okay, where's the erase button? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.